Hi, this is Dr. Adrian Lopresti. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where we'll be talking to Dr. Frank Carl about how to assess and treat people with sleep-related disorders. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based integrative, functional and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. We pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Emma Sutherland and joining us on the line today is Dr Andrew Orr. Andrew is a reproductive medicine and women's health medicine specialist and he has a master's degree in both these specialties. He's also a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, a naturopath, and he runs a busy practice in Brisbane. Andrew uses his clinical experience and research to bring the best possible treatments via an integrative medicine approach. Today is part of our series on endometriosis, and Andrew is joining with us to share insights from his perspective as an experienced clinician. Welcome to FX Medicine, Andrew. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, me too. (laughs) Now, from our previous podcasts in this series, we have discovered that endometriosis affects one in nine women and it takes an average of six and a half years for a woman to be diagnosed. And Mm -hmm. endometriosis is often under-recognised and misdiagnosed. But to get us started, Andrew, what sparked your passion for treating endometriosis? I think my passion started with family members with the disease, you know, and Mm. my two daughters also have endo, but um, I've had loved ones earlier on. And I suppose just seeing people come through the clinic that they really aren't being heard or like you said, you know, it often, you know, takes six or more years, you know, some Mm. people never are diagnosed. So, It was something I felt really passionate about to get out there and learn more about, but also then start advocating for women as well. Yeah, well, I'm sure there's many women out there that are very grateful that you have chosen this path. So let's dive into it. A 2022 paper looking at immune cell phenotypes found that women with endometriosis had higher levels of inflammatory phenotypes as well as decreased activity of endometrial macrophages. I would love to hear your insights into what is endometriosis and what are its key drivers? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What is endometriosis? And one of the things that I say to people is that the the best way to describe endometriosis is it it is like a cancer, but it's not cancer. Mm. And there has been some recent research to show that there are similarities between some of the biomarkers of ovarian cancers and and endometriosis, but the way it behaves, how it can spread through the body, mm-hmm. definitely behaves like a cancer, doesn't it? And mm. then it is endometrial-like tissue, but it's not the endometrium. So what is it? And it's like, well, what happens to it? You know, how does it get there? And I mean, there's suggestions that every woman actually has the predisposition to have endo. Mm. It's just whether it expresses in the body through epigenetics or not. 
So that's the million-dollar question. What is it? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it is, and it, it baffles all of us. And and I'm hoping today that, you know, we can tease apart a lot of this and provide some great insights to our audience, uh, myself yeah. included in that. And <laughs> I was reading a recent article written by Dr. Mark Armour who suggests that surgery yep. shouldn't be used as a diagnostic test and that endometriosis should be more of a clinical diagnosis I mean, currently, how is endometriosis diagnosed and, and how can this be improved? Well, currently, the definitive diagnosis is a laparoscopy or mm. surgical intervention because some people, they are discovered accidentally through other surgical techniques or open mm, surgery. True. Mm. Yeah, so, and we know that it has been found in girls as young as five years old, so wow. accidentally again. But where... I think Mike was getting to is that sometimes we place so much, you know, precedence on surgical interventions and forget about the clinical diagnosis. Mm. And let's face it, we can all diagnose endometriosis. There are clear-cut signs and symptoms that will suggest someone has a like a 99% chance that they have endometriosis mm. and then the surgical intervention will then you know, is the definitive diagnosis. Yeah. But what if someone can't afford that surgical intervention? Oh, exactly. So you have to rely on your clinical skills. And this is what I say to practitioners is that if you have those diagnostics and differential diagnosis and your pathological sim and you work backwards and down and go, okay, this person's got this symptom, she's got painful periods, pain with intercourse, ovulation pain, IBS-like symptoms, yeah. recurrent UTIs, chronic fatigue, pain on bowel movement, there's a high likelihood that that person probably has endometriosis. Yeah. But um, we do need to do something more in the way of diagnosis that isn't so invasive, but yeah. that's yet to come. I mean, can, can you talk us through, because there's a lot of talk around the deep endometriosis ultrasound, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the <laughs> yeah. pros and cons uh, for our patients of this. Yeah, look, we've talked about imaging, and I mean, imaging definitely cannot diagnose superficial endometriosis. Okay. And most people with endometriosis these days have superficial endometriosis, not so much the deep infiltrating. Okay. But a good, you know, radiology imaging can diagnose deep infiltrating um, endometriosis, mm. but it all depends on the user. And this is the problem because every radiology department or radiology place doesn't have a gynecological radiologist or a gynecological sonographer. Mm. And a good gynecological sonographer or radio will be able to diagnose deep infiltrating endometriosis, but you're just your general radiologist, general sonographer is just used to seeing broken limbs and bits and pieces. Yeah. They'll miss it. So in Australia, I understand we've probably only got 20 to 30 good gynecological radiologists so or mm. sonographers, yeah, so not yeah. many. No, it isn't many. And I know in Sydney there's Omnicare. They seem to do a good job. They're very specialised in this. But you're right, you know, the value of the result on the test comes down to the skill of the sonographer ultimately. It does. But I think the hard thing is when we start mentioning that imaging can diagnose endometriosis, then people cherry pick and then think 
that all imaging can diagnose endo and it and it just doesn't. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's a really good point. And mm. you mentioned a couple of them before, but for you, what are the clinical white flags that make your brain immediately think, okay, it looks like we might have endometriosis here? I think having part of the TCM background helps with a little bit of that diagnostics um, Mm -hmm. in that sort of pathological, like the differential diagnosis. So when someone has period pain, dark and clotted menstrual blood is another one, which a lot of people don't look for. Mm. That's that classic blood stagnation in TCM. Yes, of course. And then going to all the bowel stuff because... If a woman comes in or a person with female reproductive parts comes in and says to me, I've got IBS and I've been diagnosed with IBS, I automatically think endometriosis because Mm. a lot of people will first go in about bowel complaints or digestive complaints. So that's another thing to look for. Mm. But we know that a significant portion of women with endometriosis are asymptomatic too. So that makes it really hard. Yeah. For those ones, and that's when you would look at some person with long-term infertility that wasn't conceiving, mm. everything you're doing is not working, Yeah. then go on and have a look for it. And we know that, like I said, 50% of women on laparoscope will have endometriosis. Yeah, it's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's a lot. Yeah. This is where this one in nine women having endometriosis, you have to question it a little bit because... Mm. They're only the ones that are diagnosed. So is it wider that spread than that? Ultimately, I, I, I think absolutely it's more widespread. And even after 20 years in clinic myself, I still can't pick it. You know, I'll have a patient that will come back from a laparoscopy, zero symptoms whatsoever, and be told that she has stage four endo. I mean, it's it's such a confusing disease as a clinician. It is. It is. And that's where... I think looking at, say, someone uh, that did come into your clinic and say they didn't have pain but they had clotted, you know, menstrual blood and that dark stagnation there, that's a key symptom. Oh, Um, I love that. Let me press pause on that. For all the clinicians out there, that was a very, very good (laughs) clinical pearl, the dark clotted bleed. I think that's fantastic. But, Andrew, are there blood markers that you do use that you think could provide clues about the possible presence of endometriosis? I mean, is there any Uh, that you value at all? I still use, while CA125 isn't a reliable marker, Yeah. even for cancer it's not a reliable marker, a low high can still be indicative that endometriosis might be present. So if you, all the signs and symptoms are there and then all of a sudden a high CA125 comes up, you're like, uh-huh. Mm. Or say someone that was asymptomatic yeah. um, and then a high CA125 comes up, you're like, Hmm, okay, that's interesting. And then it might lead to further questions. Yeah. But what kind of numbers, like when you say high, you're talking what kind of number? A low high, just in reference. So sometimes you might see someone just outside the reference markers. Mm -hmm. And this is the hard thing too. Every pathology lab. True, (laughs) true. (laughs) We'll have a different set of reference points. So often when uh, practitioners ask me, well, what's the, what's the reference? I should, okay, have a look at what your pathology lab is. And if it's outside that, just outside that, 
it could be an indicator that they do have endometriosis. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> if they have a slightly upper end level of CA125 and they're also getting dark clotted bleeds, Menstrual. then for you, it's like, okay, bingo, there is something here that we need to look at. Definitely. And especially okay. if they have the bout, like someone says to me, IBS, I'm like, yeah, okay, let's go and have a look at this. Yeah, interesting. So mm-hmm. pelvic pain is the topic of a government-funded national program in schools and mm. it's being rolled out by the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia to raise awareness of this issue. In mm. clinic, it's really common for a young girl or woman to say she's experiencing pelvic pain. I'd love mm. to hear how do you view pelvic pain? Well, I probably don't know many women with endometriosis that don't have pelvic pain. Mm. It's interesting you brought this up because it's a topic that I've been discussing a lot lately. Okay. A lot of the time when they get the diagnosis for endometriosis, everything gets blamed on endo. Mm, True. But the reality is that a lot of these people actually have chronic pelvic pain. It's not the endometriosis. It's the pelvic floor firing off and a lot of them have a hypertonic pelvic floor. Okay. And because, you know, the pelvic floor acts like a sling, so Mm. they get the back pain, they often get rectal pressure kind of feeling or they might get bladder issues. They have trouble moving their bowel or it alternates and Mm. then they have the lower abdominal pain, which can then radiate as well. So it's good to focus on things like pelvic pain, but they also need to focus on what's the cause of that pelvic pain too. Yes, it's a really good point that you know it, it is not just one dimensional. It can be no. many drivers in resulting in that pelvic pain. Absolutely, and a lot of young women these days will have a hypertonic pelvic floor um, mm. because they're usually a little bit more sedentary, and then they'll intermittent exercise, which is then tightening the pelvic floor or. The go-to for most women when you yeah. hear the word pelvic floor is like, oh, tighten, tighten, tighten. Yeah. But that could be actually counterintuitive and making things worse. Yes, yes, that's where a good pelvic floor physio needs to come into play. Uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely, a good pelvic floor physio, which every woman with endometriosis will need as well. Now, endometriosis can be treated in several ways depending on the severity of the case. It does tend to be driven by whether the primary goal is to become pregnant or to treat the pain. I want us to deep dive into treatment, both medical and holistic. The most recent data I could find states that there were around 34,200 endometriosis-related hospitalizations in 2017. First of all, can you talk us through the medical treatment options for endometriosis? Yeah, well, that it's varied. Um, mm. And I think this is probably one of the biggest issues and I think everyone needs to know is that while endometriosis is a disease that is widespread, yeah. it still needs individualised care because every woman with endometriosis will have individualised symptoms. Yes. Sure, you know, they have endo, but some women don't have any symptoms at all. Some women get endo belly, some don't. Mm. So that's where your, your treatments will come into. But the broad spectrum stuff on the medical perspective is yeah. progestins because we know it's estrogen driven mm. and even small amounts of estrogen drive it. But progestins are the mainstay to help with slowing the progression of the disease down. Okay. Obviously, they do use the oral contraceptive pill, but 
Personally, I think the danger with a combined pill, even mm-hmm. though some women do respond to it, is that it does have that estrogenic response in it, which while you could be uh, helping on one front, you could be seeding it and fueling it on another. Yeah, exactly. It is a little <laughs> bit of a it's a slippery slope, I agree. And then we've got our GNRH analogs, you know, mm. like Zolidex and other things like that that can help. And then right down to pain management, which, you know, often are opioids. And considering the opioid crisis that we do have in Australia, mm. um, it's a catch-22. We've taken opioids, some opioids off the chemist shelves, but I think it's hurting on two fronts. Yeah, Look, in researching for this episode, I actually came across a fascinating 2021 paper, I think it was, yeah, discussing chronic opioid use in women with endometriosis. And the conclusion stated that women with endometriosis had four times higher risk of chronic opioid use compared to women without endometriosis. And I really want to just dive into this a little because I think it's something that isn't talked about, isn't highlighted, and we need to have it on our radar. We do. We do need to have it on our radar because we will see some women that it's it's gone some way the other way where women that need the pain medicines aren't being given them, but at yeah, the same okay. time some are over-prescribed them and are. And then some will present to emergency departments knowing that they will get a big hit of opioids. And I mean, you can imagine the level of pain and anguish and I can't even put words to it that would drive a woman to do that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a real hard one, isn't it? Yeah. It's when you're in chronic pain, you don't want someone to be in pain, but then we let's have a look at any drug. You've got a withdrawal symptom mm. with it too that could be actually making their pain worse. And it's not till you take those pain medications away that you can actually see how much pain they're in because the mm. opiates could be making them worse yeah. through that constant high and then low and then high and low withdrawing. Yeah, but who's managing this, Andrew? I mean, this is where it gets really yeah. muddy. You know, who's managing this situation? So when we did the episode with uh, Natasha, our patient, she really emphasised that the need for a care team around her was part of her really you know, working with her endometriosis in a way that was good, you know, but many women are not even aware. They don't know who to talk to. They don't understand how to gather a care team. I mean, for us as practitioners, we we really need to be supporting and facilitating women to do this. Oh, absolutely. And it's one of the biggest things I'm really, really big on is that no one person alone can do it and, Mm. and no one can do it on their own either. And no practitioner has all the skills. A woman with endometriosis needs a team. They need a multimodality approach, Mm. not just one medical approach, because we know that despite the best medical interventions, women are still in pain, they still have symptoms. So we need to look at it on a holistic, individualised approach. And uh, you need that care team there. You really do. And Mm. you, you can't do it on your own. You can't. Talking about specialised people, I I know you're very particular with this and I think 
this is important. What is an advanced trained surgeon? And, and how do we actually ref- find one to refer to or how do we refer to one? Because I think this, if, if a woman's going down the medical route and she is going to have surgery, this information's critical. It is critical and this is the biggest problem. Advanced trained surgeons cannot actually, under the APRA and under okay. health regulations, they aren't allowed to advertise that they're an advanced trained surgeon due to anti-competitive laws. Okay. That's the biggest horrible thing. But you can ring the Royal College of um, Surgeons and find out who they are. So there is a difference between an advanced trained surgeon and someone that's done advanced training because advanced training could just mean a weekend course in advanced laparoscopic surgery. Okay. Whereas an advanced trained surgeon has done their normal surgical training plus another five or so years on top of that. So they're the best of the best. They also have to maintain a certain number of surgeries a year, usually around about 100 or more to Mm. maintain their status. Okay. So that's another thing you need to know. And they're the top of the field. A good surgeon I know who is an advanced trained surgeon said, look, in 52 surgeons this year, how many do you think will go on to become an advanced trained surgeon? I said, I have no idea. He said two. Wow. So this is the problem when people are saying, oh, we need more, we need more. We do, (laughs) but getting them to that level, it takes a lot of time. Do your homework and um, people like Endometriosis Australia will know who they are. Okay. Um, Practitioners like myself, if they want to reach out, I can tell you who they are. Mm Mm-hmm. And you get to know after a while, but it it should be more readily available, but due to laws, that's not. Yeah, it's a really good understanding of the difference there between it and, and how highly refined their skill sets are, which is what yeah. we want for our patients. And because it's a, uh, it's got so many drivers, endometriosis really lends itself to being treated holistically with diet and lifestyle and effective therapies. I mean, it, I do feel like it is a perfect candidate for our kind of holistic treatment. Absolutely it is and because it's not just about pain, it's not just about progestins, it's not just about surgery. We know that when they don't eat well, it makes it worse. Yeah. We know yeah. when their microbiomes aren't great, mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. makes it worse, not only physical symptoms, but we know the gut-brain axis and what that plays. And a lot of women with endometriosis either have some form of mood disorder or anxiety or yeah something there as well. Um, I want to look at holistic treatment for endometriosis and what's your clinical approach to treating endometriosis? I mean, I've got to say, Andrew, I've got so many questions for you. We have (laughs) so much to talk about. So I'm really hoping that I can pick your brains on all these things. You can pick my brains and I'm glad you talk because that's how we have to deal with things on that holistic front as well because, Mm. like I said, we know despite the best medical interventions, it's just not enough. So my my go-to is because I've got nutrition background, naturopathy, TCM background, yeah. I mix all of them together. But the first protocol for me is addressing the microbiome. Aha, uh-huh. I did want to <laughs> dive into this. <laughs> <laughs> because if you address the microbiome, not only are you going to reduce systemic inflammation in their body, you're going to help them, like I said, on a, a whole gut-brain front as well. So it's important 
if someone said to me, you can only use one medicine in your clinic for the rest of your life, I'd say brain probiotics. Fantastic. Brain <laughs> probiotics. Yes. I mean, that's the importance that you're placing on this whole driver of endometriosis. And, you know, what mechanisms do you think are at play with this? It's an interesting, I mean, all of us, we hear it around every so often, oh, endometriosis, the suggestion that it's an autoimmune disease, but Mm. it's autoimmune-like, but it isn't an autoimmune disease because it doesn't fit the classification of an autoimmune disease because it doesn't act upon itself. Okay. And we, whereas, say, like the thyroid, it produces autoantibodies, does act upon itself, so an endometriosis at this present time doesn't have autoantibodies. That's not to mm. say that we might not discover them in a year's time, yeah. but at this present time it doesn't. But it's an inflammatory state. It affects their bowel. I mean, you look at a woman with um, endometriosis as having an endo flare. Yeah. They look like they're six to nine months pregnant. Mm. That's dysbiotic bacteria at play at its best. Yeah. And then it's further inflammation, pelvic floor, the whole lot. And, you know, their stomachs, they will present to the ER. So you've got to clear that dysbiotic bacteria, mm-hmm. lay down that foundation of prebiotics, fix the gut, you know, using things like glutamine and, and things like that, and then use your strain-specific bacteria like the 299Vs, like the plantarum, mm-hmm. and, and then feed them with prebiotics because you need those prebiotics. So that's your first port of call. Yeah, the first one. <laughs> Tell us more though. I want to hear more. Obviously diet, number one rule of anyone is diet. Yeah, um, I love that. Reducing those high refined foods. So it's not just a low GI diet, but some of them might need a modified FODMAPy primal based diet, like a Mediterranean style diet, if you really wanted the best sort of, you know, diet. Um, But anything that's reducing sugar and refined carbohydrates is going to help them. I'm a little bit bigger on watch some legumes because I know that some people, they'll eat lentils, chickpeas and things like that, thinking that they're good for them and they'll just inflame them. But look at the individual and see. But the wellness sort of pyramid should be there. You know, the higher amounts of protein, the good fats, less refined carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. plenty of fresh veggies, water, electrolytes, electrolytes, Mm. electrolytes, electrolytes. Yeah. And try and get them moving some form of exercise as well when they can. Yeah. Definitely. And then I use herbal medicines too, like Mm, herbs as food, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Any particulars that you like? My my favourite herbs are definitely parsley. Mm, Beautiful. (laughs) It's a superfood. And then, you know, turmeric. If you grow your own turmerics and things and gingers, you know, yeah. you can't go past those. Um, and even things like basil. Yeah. And, um, and I think this whole food as medicine, we have to continually yeah. remind people to come back to that and really think about the fact that it could be one small thing. You just start growing some parsley and adding yeah. it to your food once a day because these things make a difference in the long term. They do, and they're things that everyone, no matter where you live, you can grow those things on your balcony Mm. or in your yard. 
Yeah, I remember there was an ABC reporter a few years ago. She grew 70-something kilograms of vegetables on her little balcony somewhere. Incredible. In in Sydney. Yeah, there you go. Everyone can do it. And so when you're looking, if we zoom out and we look at your holistic approach, your first focus is on working on the gut, clearing the gut out, calming things down with things like glutamine and strain-specific probiotics, Probiotics. feeding them with some really good prebiotics, both sort of food and supplement-based ones, and moving their nutrition to more of a Mediterranean-style diet and reducing sugar and adding in herbs as that food-as-medicine approach as well. Uh Absolutely. And then using herbal medicines and formulas. I'm big on synergistics. Okay. Um, Tell us more about that. Yeah, because I think a lot of practitioners don't understand is that when you study a single herb, it might have a certain property, but when you put it with another one or two herbs, it changes the whole properties altogether and they can work in a synergy. Yes. And that synergistic approach is more what probably someone with endometriosis needs because one, they will need gut herbs, not that the whole focus should be on the gut, by the way, Mm. because it's not just the gut, but then they'll need herbs that will help with the microcirculation into the uterine lining, into that, you know, the lower reproductive area. Yeah. And then antispasmodics that help with pain and things like that. So that's where I tend to use more the Chinese herbal medicines for gynecology because I find they work, dare I say, (laughs) better than the naturopathic herbs. But then the naturopathic herbs will work better on on another front. So Mm. it's it's a marrying the two together. Yeah. And you mentioned before estrogen is one of the drivers. What do you do clinically to help modulate or alter those estrogen levels? Well, this is where we can bring in herbs as well that can do that and certain herbs will actually help with that. Yeah. And then, you know, like we were just talking about food, you know, like broccoli extract and that will help. So there's all that and then you can look at some of the bioidentical hormones and stuff that we see now that can be compounded and are better because they are more like the body's own progesterone or estrogen. So they work a lot better than the synthetics in my opinion. But And then, you know, now, dare say it, cannabis. Um, Oh, good, yes. I I wanted to cover this, yes. When I spoke to um, Professor John Waddle in that episode on the research-based one, we did Mm. discuss it and I came across a 2021 paper showing that 72% of Australian women with endometriosis have self-prescribed cannabis. So the, the demand is there. But can you tell us about your clinical experience in this space? Because cannabis is not just cannabis. You know, it's not that simple. No, it's not. And look, one of the biggest things that we don't want women doing is smoking on any front. Yeah. Um, and that includes smoking cannabis. And a lot of people will mix tobacco and cannabis together to smoke it as well. Mm. So that's that other side of it. But then what people don't understand, it's not the THC that's acting on them, it's the actual cannabinoids and the cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system is, Mm. it's amazing. And PAs has endocannabinoid pathway receptors. So it 
those two together are amazing to use, like PEA and CBD. Mm. But you have to reach an optimal dosing with it, and that's what people don't understand. So women with endo will grab from anywhere the um, the CBD oil, Mm. and it could be made from Backyard Joe, and it doesn't have that proper extraction process. They're not getting the cannabinoids that they need to in the right dosages. Mm, So this is the problem. Yeah. Needs to be in a prescription of about 120 milligrams per mil in that concentration. Mm -hmm. And I've found that about 0.25 of a mil twice a day is where they need to start off on. Yeah. And then they could work up to 0.3 of a mil and then up to 0.35 of a mil. Because the smaller the doses, the better it works. Mm, Nice. And it can't just be taken one off. So you've got to reach that optimal dosing. And it might take a month. It might take two months for Mm. it to fully kick in and work, just like PEA does. Um, So that's what practitioners need to know as well. It's not like taking an aspirin. Mm-hmm. And 30 minutes later, it works. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> but that's a fantastic clinical insight around the cannabis and the dosing and the strength. I mean, that's really important. And obviously, you know, we are referring to GPs for this because this is way beyond our scope of practice. How do you go with that process? Well, it's easy now. What um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Philip Hall, is actually doing, he's actually part of uh, prescribing uh, cannabis through his practice, but he actually works for one of the cannabis companies. Mm -hmm. And what people can do now is go directly through the companies. Um, So they go onto a website, they fill out all their details. So just like you would as going into a GP's practice. Yeah. They take down those details and then they give it to a specific practitioner who will be a medical specialist. Okay. The medical specialist then calls them back, asks them a few questions and then prescribes them the CBD. So there's a lot of those now. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, so it's a lot easier for natural medicine practitioners to get their patients to do this. And then to reorder it, they just download an app mm-hmm. and because they've filled out all their information already and yeah. then they just reorder it via the app. That's okay. it. Yeah, that sounds quite amazing because you know, it does worry me when patients come in and say that they're taking it and they've bought it online and they really don't know much about it and I spend hours researching what they're taking in case there's interactions with what I'm giving. You know, it's just a bit of a nightmare. So it's, it's great to have a service like that that we can utilise. So thank you for sharing that that with us. No, no problem. And they will screen for medicine interactions before you even get it. But then the process to order it once you've done the initial paperwork is very easy. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, that is beautiful. We heard in our previous podcast on endometriosis from Natasha and she really emphasised the need for rest on all levels, like including oh. mental and sensory, which I thought was a great point. But how do we as clinicians best support a woman emotionally and psychologically? I mean, we've talked about the importance of a care team, but when they're sitting in front of you, you know, what are some tips that you can share with us that you find work well? 
Well, obviously a good psychologist, because I think when people think of a psychologist, they think just working with cognitive behavioral therapies and things like that. Okay. But there are some clinical psychologists that just deal with pain Mm. and actually help through mindfulness techniques, coping strategies, working through triggers, things like that, which will then reduce their pain. Yeah. Then there's apps like Insight Timer you can download from on your iPhone. Yeah. Um, great app. You can set it to ping you a couple of times a day, ask you how you are. If you say you're stressed, then you can chart it and say, yes, I'm stressed, and it runs you through a few programs, things mm. like that. Yeah. Herbs, obviously, there's wonderful herbs. Acupuncture is amazing for reducing not only pain, which I use in my clinic for pelvic pain, for any forms of pain, but relaxing the patient, Mm. getting them to play some nice music, sitting Mm. outside in the beautiful sunshine, you know, you can't beat that. Yeah, that's true. Nature's antidepressant, isn't it? Oh, it is. And, you know, I don't know the exact stats, but we We know that 97% of Australians are vitamin D deficient and I would generally say that most people with endometriosis would be vitamin D deficient because they're not getting outside enough. So Yeah, yeah, really good point, really good point. Oh, I've just loved this chat. I know we're going to have to wind it up, but are there any final clinical pearls you would like to share with us? You've given us a lot already, but I'm always going to push for a few more. Uh, The clinical pearls are that, again, that no one medicine can do it all. So you are going to have to work with a good team and that Mm. requires you meeting a good um, advanced trained surgeon. You know, find a good pelvic floor specialist, find a good psychologist, find a good naturopath, nutritionist, acupuncturist, the whole lot. Yeah. Work together. It's a must. And that's part of what I do in my practice. Mm. Differential diagnosis. You've got to use differential diagnosis. Forget the pathology in this one. Okay. Um, you're not going to see anything in blood work at all. Um, you have to rely on your differential diagnosis. Yeah. So, so be confident in that. Pre and probiotics, as I said, <laughs> and water. Plenty yeah. of water. Yeah, you and- mentioned electrolytes. I'm just going to take you back there just for a minute. So the role of electrolytes, what are they doing? Apart from the obvious, but what do you think that they're doing that makes the difference? I think most of us are probably dehydrated in a day. And if we're dehydrated, that leads to muscle cramps, spasms, mm. all kinds of things. And and we aren't drinking enough water and we don't have enough of those essential minerals and elements in our system now. So a good electrolyte daily to to hydrate is going to make a world of a difference. And some of them even, you know, might even have some high-dose magnesium and stuff in them as well, which yes. will help. Yes. Um, but electrolytes, yeah, definitely. Because water alone does not hydrate you. It yeah. doesn't. Yes. Coconut water, sure, or it has electrolyte properties, but it's not a proper electrolyte. So get a proper electrolyte into it. Yeah, fantastic. And easily done. And you will get good patient compliance with that. So I love that tip. (laughs) Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. The key points I've taken are so many. I mean, the importance (laughs) of holistic treatment, the urgency of, of early diagnosis and treatment, and the power of food as medicine. I mean, incredible. Thank you so much. 
Oh, it is my pleasure. We could talk for hours. (laughs) (laughs) That we could. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website, fxmedicine.com.au. I'm Emma Sutherland. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues. 